latest book, Rightful Heritage, Douglas Brinkley chronicles Franklin D. Roosevelt's essential yet undersung legacy as the founder of the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, and premier protector of America's public lands. FDR built from scratch dozens of state park systems and scenic roadways. Pristine landscapes, such as the Great Smokies, the Everglades, Joshua Tree, Mammoth Cave, and the Slick Rock Wilderness of Utah were forever saved by his leadership. Brinkley traces FDR's love for the natural world from his youth exploring the Hudson River Valley and bird watching. As America's president from 1933 to 1945, a Roosevelt consummate political strategist established hundreds of federal migratory bird refuges and spearheaded the modern endangered species movement. Rightful heritage is essential reading for everyone seeking to preserve our treasured landscapes as an American birthright. Douglas Brinkley is a professor of history at my graduate alma mater, I'm happy to say, Rice University in Houston, and a best-selling and award-winning author and presidential historian for CNN. He serves as a contributing editor for Vanity Fair and is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic Monthly. Brinkley has also been actively involved in the conservation community. Over the course of his career, he has held board or leadership advisory roles in the American Museum of Natural History, Yellowstone Park Foundation, National Audubon Society, and the Rockefeller Roosevelt Conservation Roundtable. You all may know he is the author of numerous books, many of which have been bestsellers, and no less than eight have been selected as New York Times Notable Books of the Year, including The Great Deluge, Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans and the Mississippi Gulf Coast, The Wilderness Warrior, Theodore Roosevelt, and The Crusade for America, The Quiet World, Saving Alaska's Wilderness Kingdom, 1879 to 1960, Cronkite, and his newest best-selling book, Rightful Heritage, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the Land of America. So please join us in a warm VHS welcome to Douglas Brinkley. Good afternoon. It's a great honor to be here with you. Uh, I have arrived in Richmond over the weekend for a biographer's conference. And then my, we have three children, my wife Anne and I, and they're at the Fine Arts Museum right now, so they don't have to listen to Dad speak. Um, but we've been spending time in Colonial Williamsburg and Jamestown and um, Yorktown and having a great time. We're doing a, a vacation trip just on Virginia history with my, my children who are 9, 11, and 13. Um, so this is my little break coming to you this afternoon. Uh, the, uh, I wanted to begin by telling you, um, just like I'm taking my kids around here now, my mother and father were high school teachers uh, even we, I grew up in Georgia, around Atlanta, and then we lived in Ohio. But on the summers, we would usually go about six weeks, sometimes eight weeks, in a trailer all across the United States visiting national parks, baseball stadiums, museums, and the like. So I kind of was a summer road kid, and I caught the bug of American history. 
And wherever I went and picked up those brochures, today people look uh, obviously online for info, but I used to just always grab the brochures. Somehow or other, any park I went to, Theodore Roosevelt or Franklin Roosevelt had something to do with saving it. Um, and it stuck in my mind. And some years back, a few years ago now, I decided I was going to start writing the history of conservation movement in America and begin it with the biography of Theodore Roosevelt, as mentioned, the wilderness warrior. Um, and then take it right up to, say, the age of climate change, meaning right up until uh, maybe the Clinton years. So I would look at uh, all these different administrations and how they dealt with land management, natural resources, and the like. Now, Theodore Roosevelt um, was my boyhood hero. He was so, I had asthma as a kid, and, and TR had asthma, and I identified with that a lot. But a lot of young, um, young people uh, really are taken at Theodore Roosevelt. There's a swashbuckling side to him that's almost irresistible when you read biographies about him. But on the conservation front, it's really a seminal to his achievement uh, uh, and why we rank him. Usually we rank him as our fourth president in greatness. We People put Lincoln first and Washington second um, and FDR third and Theodore Roosevelt fourth and then Truman and Jefferson kick in. Um, but Theodore Roosevelt was born 1858 in New York City, and his mother was from Georgia, and she was for the Confederates in the Civil War, and his father was from New York, and he was um, pro-Lincoln, pro-Union. So they had hellacious fights in the family, and he's born 1858, so you imagine when he's five years old and hearing all of this uh, for four or five, first memories are, um, are these arguments. And young TR would say, I decided I was not going to like the South or the North. I was going to embrace the West. <laughs> and he did. Um, he, he had a Western vector his whole life. He thought the West of America would be the New Eden. Um, part of this was spurred by the fact that Boys Magazine started publishing right after the Civil War photographs of our treasures of the West, our heirlooms, suddenly Crater Lakes in a Boys Magazine or arches, you know, um, in Utah or, you know, the Mojave Desert and all of this in, with photographs. And you had the Hayden Expedition in 1871 that went to Yellowstone. In 1872, Yellowstone by Ulysses S. Grant gets declared as our nation's first national park. So young T.R. is following all of this. But something more is going on than that. His father was the founder of the American Museum of Natural History. Theodore Roosevelt Sr. did the fundraising connected with Alan Bickmore um, and, and with the idea that we're going to have a better museum in the United States than the British have. And they're going to build it in New York, and they're doing all this collecting on natural history. So that was a big part of TR's childhood. Add to that fact that Theodore Roosevelt's uncle, his father's brother, Uncle Robert Barnwell Roosevelt, was considered the John James Audubon of the Reconstruction period. Uncle Rob wrote a book called The Waterfowl of Florida. Uncle Rob wrote a book on Lake Superior. 
Uncle Rob um, wrote about frogs and eels and with scientific exactitude. Uncle Rob was a self-proclaimed Darwinian because in 1859, Charles Darwin's On the Origins of Species came out. And that, guys, is a revolution, that book. And it may not have affected people fighting the Civil War. You don't look at soldiers reading Darwin in the Civil War. But if you're an aristocratic family in New York that's trying to fundraise for the American Museum of Natural History and your uncle is this top naturalist Darwin was everything. So one of the first leavings, childhood jottings of Theodore Roosevelt is he writes Darwin's theory of evolution and shows, you know, himself evolving from a stork and his brother from a dog and, you know, in a, but it's in this little childhood scrawl. So he's already thinking in these sort of Darwinian um, terms. And then he wanted, if dad's building the American Museum of Natural History, I'm going to create my own family home museum so he would collect birds nest and eggs and he'd go shooting birds in uh, Central Park which was kind of a wilderness field Central Park of their big parts when you could go there and shoot a songbird back then and he then would do taxidermy Theodore Roosevelt from John James Audubon's chosen pupil a man named John Bell one of the finest taxidermists taught Theodore Roosevelt the intricate art of doing taxidermy on small birds. And he started getting his collection. And TR says, I'm going to go to Harvard and I'm going to become what today we would call a wildlife biologist. He wanted to go into natural studies, um, naturalist studies, but with a focus on animal life. And he really was, he was wired to be a wildlife biologist. And he's our, really our only biologist-oriented president as such. When he's at Harvard, young Theodore Roosevelt writes his first book, The Summer Birds of the Adirondacks, um, because he would go bird watching all over the Adirondacks wilderness and Catskills. And because of his asthma in a New York City pre-EPA, pre-federal regulations and all this, the air quality would be very bad. And when he'd get up into the wilderness of north, northern New York, he felt like a million bucks. So his entire life, Theodore Roosevelt connects outdoors life with health. Nature is curative. Fresh air, you know, makes you feel good and all of this. Um, now, he, of course, goes on out of Harvard and um, goes into politics. He becomes a reformer, progressive. Um, now, Uncle Robert Barnwell Roosevelt was a Democrat, uh, actually was our ambassador to the Netherlands and ran the Democratic National Committee. But he's been written out of the Roosevelt family uh, because he had two uh, alternative families. He got a, a woman pregnant on the street block in New York and had other children. And his father found out about it. And Theodore Roosevelt's father was very religious and pious and wanted his children nothing to do with Uncle Rob. Also, Uncle Rob embarrassed the family by writing what today would be considered low-grade, very low-grade, um, almost R-rated, let's call it, um, a pornographic novel. <laughs> Uncle Robert Barnwell Roosevelt wrote a novel called Petticoat Junction. Uh, and it, it truly, you can't make this up. And he got, and he, and he got, um, you know, so he kind of got blackballed, but he was a great eccentric Uncle Rob, a Dr. Doolittle-like Victorian. 
um, eccentric who collected species in his brownstone in New York. So when young TR would go there, there's a spider monkey and a macaw and, you know, all the iguanas and all this. And for kids, that's incredible stuff for a, particularly one that loves animals like TR did. But um, he goes in and runs for new in New York, becomes state rep. Theodore Roosevelt, one day a runner gives him a note when he's at a podium and it's from his brother, a Western Union-like telegram. And on it, it says, uh, Theodore, get into, uh, into Manhattan. Mother is burning up with fever and your wife Alice is giving childbirth. He, he scuttle-butted to the depot and got on a train from Albany to New York City and he gets into the home. It's Valentine's Day, so it's winter. It's still gaslit New York, not electricity. Going from one floor to the other. And that evening, his mother dies from Bright's disease, and his wife, Alice, dies giving childbirth. He loses the two women in his life on the same night, within hours of each other. And he puts a giant X in his diary, one of the most moving documents I've seen as a professional historian and says the light has gone out of my life forever. Deep depression. His sister, the baby lives, that becomes Alice um, uh, Longworth Roosevelt, the great socialite. And um, in Theodore Roosevelt's sister watches the baby and she says, Theodore, go west. You're always excited about the West. He had gone, gone grouse hunting in very Western Iowa, Carroll County, way Western, and loved it. And then he had gone up to the Red River Valley of Minnesota and North Dakota and loved it. So she would say, just get out of the city, clear your mind, get out there. So he took the Northern Pacific Railroad as it was being built and got off where it led him off in the middle of the Badlands. Medora, North Dakota. Any of you get a chance, go there today to Medora. It's Theodore Roosevelt National Park, and you're guaranteed to see antelope and bison. It's a, a, it's, you don't have the congestion of some of the more famous national parks. It's uh, really quite remarkable up there. And there's nothing blocking it from the Arctic winds. So the winds come down. So if you're asthmatic, it's like heaven, the fresh air blowing on you. He spends his years in the wilderness, as he calls them. He looks for grizzly bear. He writes about the Little Missouri River ecosystem, as we call it today, about the flora and fauna of that region. Nobody's written about the Badlands with the beauty of Theodore Roosevelt. Some of his writings you'll find in anthologies with John Muir and John Burroughs, a real great naturalist writers, because he was so a, a, a fine nature writer um, and a hunter and a cowboy, and a rancher, and he would say, I never would have been president if it wasn't for my time in North Dakota. He does three books he writes about there, one of them illustrated by Frederick Remington. And um, I, he then goes on, police commissioner, and, and you know, he's um, assistant secretary of the Navy. And he goes on to uh, quitting the Navy in 1898 to, to gin up the Rough Riders, as you all assuredly know. He goes, quits government, goes to San Antonio at the Manger Hotel across from the Alamo, registers volunteers from the territories predominantly, the twin territories, Indian country, Oklahoma, and then New Mexico, Arizona, and then also Ivy League swells from Harvard and Yale that were on the polo teams and the like up there that are coming to join 
the first volunteers, the Rough Riders. And Theodore Roosevelt goes and fights in the Spanish-American War, leads his troops up the San Juan Hill, Kettle Hill. We'll posthumously get a Medal of Honor for this. Um, less known about the Rough Riders in 1898 uh, was that they had three mascots. And the mascot was a Theodore Roosevelt's pet cougar, Josephine. He had a golden eagle. He was doing falconry. And he had a dog, Cuba. And they not only survived the Spanish-American War, but they were with the men in quarantine when they came back for yellow fever at Mautauk, Long Island. I mention these mascots now to tell you, like Uncle Rob, Theodore Roosevelt was a collector of live animals. He usually had 35 or 40 pets at any given time. Um, Edward, uh, Edwin o, um, Wilson at, um, Edward O. Wilson at Harvard says that some people are biophilic, he calls it. People that need to have animal life near them, need plants, you know, have to have, or they don't feel complete. Others like, I don't want a dog, I don't want a cat, I want not, you know. Um, he had an obsession with animal collection. So much so, as president, he even had a pet badger named Josiah that he had raised on potatoes and milk. Uh, and it's a colonial animal, so he used to carry it around. And there are photos of kids grabbing this badger by the scruff of the neck and flinging it over their shoulders, the Roosevelt children. I looked into it. And badgers are colonial animals. And if you're raised with a family, they will never turn on their family members, but they go after others. <laughs> and so he had it, and it would go in after one, one occasion, charged a congressman T.R. didn't like who came to visit him. It was, he would have it roaming around the White House. It bit, the, bit him in the back, the congressman. It bled, and he had to then remove the badger to Sagamore Hill, his home, uh, where it's buried with the family cemetery. Um, I, I only tell you, Josiah, you get the idea. He, the emperor of Ethiopia, gave him a hyena, and, you know, it, it, it's an exotic pet thing. Um, and it's there with him his whole life. But after that Spanish-American War, he became a big hero because of his July 1, 1898 charge up San Juan, uh, Kettle Hill, uh, Cuba, and he runs for governor as the war hero, uh, and he wins the governorship in 1898. He takes to the podium in Albany in 1899, and he makes conservation of our natural resources his big calling card. When he was in legislature in New York State, he headed the Forest, Fish, and Game Commission, but now he's trying to do um, rules where you can only cut so many trees, that you can't pollute in the rivers, that you have to have sewage treatment for factories, and all of these very progressive um, laws. And he's uh, thunderous at this. He's way ahead of the curve on all of this. And the Republican Party of his day does not like it. Um, they see him as a renegade, a wild mouth, somebody who's trying to stop big business from, from doing by hyper-regulating them. So they try to get rid of him as governor of New York, and they try, the only way to get rid of him, they decide, is to offer him the vice presidency, <laughs> to run with William McKinley in 1900, to get him out of the, the New York people's hair. And he bite, bites the bait and becomes VP. And of course, lo and behold, William McKinley gets shot in Buffalo, they go looking for Theodore Roosevelt. Nobody could find him. He's lost in the wild again. 
He's up on the top of Mount Marcy in New York State. He famously said nobody should be governor of New York if they don't climb its tallest mountain, Mount Marcy. And a runner gets to him. He gets shuffled into Buffalo. And if any of you go to Buffalo, you visit the home where McKinley died and you visit the spot where Theodore Roosevelt was inaugurated president of the United States. And he, this is September of 1901. From 1901 to 1909, Theodore Roosevelt will save 234 million acres of wild America. How does one save 234 million acres of wild America? Um, you use a number of mechanisms. The one that we're celebrating this year because I'm coming to speak to you all here at Virginia Historical Society for the centennial this August of the National Park Service, which Woodrow Wilson officially established as unifying these different national parks into a system. Uh, and TR used that, getting national parks done, but all national parks have to go through Congress. Okay, so TR pushed those through. He got, did Crater Lake in Oregon. He did Mesa Verde in Colorado. He did Wind Cave in South Dakota, among others. Um, but if he just was a president that got some national parks through, we wouldn't be celebrating him as this conservation leader. Um, he uses two other mechanisms. He uses the Antiquities Act of 1906 to create national monuments. And this is executive power at its fullest. And it's Theodore Roosevelt that establishes this president. Why? What is it? First off, the Antiquities Act of 1906 was done by John Lacey from a congressman from Iowa who loved the outdoors but was particularly worried that Europeans were coming and stealing our dinosaur bones in the West and were raiding Native American antiquity sites, kivas and pottery and stealing, particularly the Scandinavians were coming in here and grabbing whatever they could because we hadn't yet realized the value of Native American uh, um, artifacts and dinosaur bones. Um, and so Lacey creates the Lacey's Act, very elastic. If you guys want to read it, pull it up. It's a paragraph, very unclear. But essentially, it says for scientific reasons, a president can use an executive order to declare a parcel of land federal ownership and property. The idea of what guys picture a murder site with the yellow plastic, you know, put around it or an archaeological dig like I just saw at Jamestown. Nobody can touch this because we're looking for ancient, you know, um, artifacts from the from 1607 or the like. You get the idea. That's the spirit of the Antiquities Act of 06. Uh, well, Theodore Roosevelt took a conservation tour. He went with John Burroughs, the great naturalist from upstate New York, who he called Um John. Uh, and he went to Yellowstone. Then he goes to the Grand Canyon, then unprotected as president, stands at the rim and was surrounded by rough riders, the men that served with him, and says, do not touch this. God has made it. You will only mar it. Leave the Grand Canyon alone. Powerful conservation speech. I just saw a hipster kid in Moab, Utah with that on a T-shirt. Do not touch it. God, you will mar it. Um, 
uh, and a campaign to save part of uh, Utah Canyonlands right now. But um, it's and then he went on to California and went camping with John Muir, founder of the Sierra Club and the Yosemite and big conservation whirlwind tour. A few years after that, Congress is gearing up to mine the Grand Canyon uh, for zinc, asbestos, and copper. And they do not want the Grand Canyon as a national park. So TR is determined this is the ultimate national park. And Congress won't take it. So he grabs that Antiquities Act, which was meant for 16 acres or 60 acres, and applies it to 600,000 acres. <laughs> and creates Grand Canyon National Monument. And it becomes then a way station. When the politics are better, you push it through as a national park, but you save it at that moment. He got taken to the courts. This was sued. This was illegal. He wins his court cases that he had the presidential authority to do that. And so he, he runs amok with the Antiquities Act. He'll sign 48 hours before he leaves the presidency. 48 hours, he saves Mount Olympus in Washington, a vast area in Washington State, using the Antiquities Act. And redwood trees in Muir Woods in Marin County, California, or Devil's Tower in Wyoming. And all of this is a, a, a way of saving places, okay? Antiquities. So the National Monument Movement. Second thing TR does, he signs 51 executive orders creating federal bird reservations. A hundred years ago, every woman here in Richmond coming to hear me speak this afternoon would have arrived here today wearing a bonnet with an ornamental feather. I know some of you would say, not me, and I'm here to tell you, yes, you would have been wearing a bonnet with an ornamental feather or a dead hummingbird, but you would have had a bird on you. Um, and the problem was there was a feather mafia down in Florida, and they would go to these bird rookeries and gun all the birds down, and then they would pluck the ornamental feathers, and then they also steal the eggs, and so species were dying. And there's a huge fear by Theodore Roosevelt, the Darwinian, um, the man of biology, that species are going extinct. And he wasn't wrong. He lived and loved pine knot ranch here, a little cabin in Charlottesville. I hope you all go visit it someday. Pine Knot, Charlottesville, Virginia was Theodore Roosevelt's getaway, his pre-Camp David home. He disappeared and he there witnessed the last passenger pigeon in the wild and wrote a report about him. The passenger pigeon officially goes extinct in 1913 with Martha dying in the Cincinnati Zoo. Cincinnati Zoo's having problems with dead animals here, but the, uh, the Mar Martha was the last, last um, one to go, and Roosevelt saw it here. But also the flamingo had been driven out of, of Florida. In this area, there used to be a Carolina parakeet. It went extinct. These ornithology magazines were called the auk because the auk had gone extinct. And so Roosevelt's part of all this. And so he's, how do we save the birds of Florida? Nothing demands federal intervention more than birds because you cannot have, we're gonna protect the birds in Connecticut when they fly down to Florida to get slaughtered. So it takes federal intervention. He looks at an area near Vero Beach, the Indian River part of Florida on the Atlantic coast where all these birds were being slaughtered. And he, he talks amongst a group of lawyers, White House um, lawyers, and answers his own question. He says, is there anything to stop me from declaring the whole region a federal bird reservation? They're like, well, Mr. President. He goes, I so declare it. 
And there is born Pelican Island National Wildlife Refuge. That is the birthplace of U.S. fish and wildlife. Today, we all own 550 National Wildlife Refuges. Uh, this is the first. If you go to Pelican Island now, you can walk a boardwalk out and each, one, each wildlife refuge has a plank on this boardwalk, but that's his first and then he does 50 others. And there gives these, and some of them are as large as the state of West Virginia. The uh, Yukon Delta in Alaska is that much land deeded to bird species as recoup centers. And humans aren't allowed to go unless you have permits, unless you're a biologist, unless you're a photographer, unless you're a student education group. These are hot spots for wildlife to regenerate itself. Very revolutionary. If you think it's slight, when he does Pelican Island and then does another one down by the Everglades, he appoints four U.S. Department of Agriculture game wardens to Florida. Two are murdered, point blank with guns, because the federal government is telling Flor Floridians that they're going to go to jail if they shoot an egret or a roseate spoonbill. This is uh, over 100 years ago, guys. This, is, uh, this one did not go well in Florida. So you're seeing the federal government coming in hard here with TR uh, on wildlife protection. So you get the idea of this. He leaves office and um, he could have run another term. Of, uh, he won big, obviously, in 1904. and 08, he could have run, but he picks William Howard Taft. Taft um, uh, he becomes president. And TR is in Africa collecting animal species for the Smithsonian Institute. Um, TR, as he famously knows, later will go to the Brazil wilderness and write about the Amazon. He's an explorer and all of this. He creates a bull moose party, however, in 1912, the most successful third party in U.S. history. TR does that in part because the chief forester, Gifford Pinchot, and he creates the National Forest Service, Theodore Roosevelt, for all this idea of national forests as a unified service around the country. And um, Taft fires his handpicked guy, Pinchot, one of the factors. But at any rate, TR destroys the Republican Party in 1912 and comes in second. Wilson, Woodrow Wilson wins, Theodore Roosevelt second third place, William Howard Taft. Um, and so he split the Republicans in two. But that he didn't lose in 1912. In fact, I argue that's when Theodore Roosevelt became something bigger than a president, bigger than a statesman, bigger than an explorer. He became a folk figure. And he became a folk figure like Davy Crockett or Johnny Appleseed or something when a assassin in Milwaukee came and shot him. He's bleeding. He holds his wound and comes up and continues to give a speech and says, it'll take more than a bullet to kill a bull moose. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, at that moment, you know, you call that nuts. Some people say that's crazy, Teddy, or whatever. Um, at this point, the, his symbol had become the teddy bear. I mean, what a great symbol, child's toy. And that's because he had fair chase hunt policy. You don't slob shoot an animal. Um, that you have fair chase and, you know, laws of how to hunt properly, license and all. Um, un, I, there are great stories behind the teddy bear, but I just want to tell you, if you think it's so easy to be a president or a politician and your symbol is a teddy bear with kids holding a bear after you, uh, William Howard Taft created the Billy Possum toy. 
I, none of you have ever heard of it. It sank like a stone. Nobody wanted a beady-eyed possum toy. You can't barely get one on eBay right now, but you can if you look. Um, you know, meaning there was some magic to Theodore Roosevelt. And when he dies, guys, in 1919, he's ex-president. The conservation movement dies with him. It's, it, he was such a force of nature that he made this. He'd say, natural resources are the number one priority of any president. And, and when he's gone, a new, the other side of the Republican Party, the big business side comes in and they win in 1920 with Warren Harding. And Harding tries to undo a lot of Roosevelt's uh, executive um, thing, uh, land and um, wildlife edicts. For example, TR created a big moose reserve in Alaska and Harding abolishes it. And they go after some of his buffalo bison reserves. Theodore Roosevelt created the first bison reserve in Oklahoma called Wichita Mountain to protect the bison and bring them back. And, um, you know, and so there's this tension. But something else in 1920. Franklin D. Roosevelt runs for vice president with James Cox of Ohio. It gets forgotten a lot. He was on the ticket Cox and Roosevelt, FDR, a Democrat, but part of the Roosevelt family. Fifth cousin is TR, yet he called him Uncle Theodore. Um, and he loses in 1920 FDR. And I'm going to pick up on that in a minute. But let me tell you about Franklin Roosevelt. He's born 1882 in the Hudson River Valley of New York, not New York City. And the Hudson is a sanctified landscape, just like your historical triangle is around Williamsburg and Yorktown. Things were very sanctified there. You had the Hudson River Valley a painter school of Thomas Cole and all, of pastoral paintings of the Hudson. You had a kind of keep the Hudson beautiful movement. You had the Adirondacks forever wild movement of the 1880s. The Catskills become one of the first parks where there are these restrictions, yet villages like Woodstock are allowed to operate in it. And it's all in his backyard. In fact, not only is he born along the Hudson River in Hyde Park, New York, FDR, but across the river with an eyesight from his bedroom is where John Burroughs lived, the great naturalist. And um, it was like the Walt Whitman, the last transcendentalist, all about nature. And so he was born with this. Also, the big deal up in the Hudson was how you manage your estate, your land. What, what is your property like an arboretum and, you know, all of this. And so it's in the blood. But the other thing to know about FDR, besides the conservation upbringing of the Hudson, upstate New York, is Theodore Roosevelt. And that's why I spent so much time talking about him. Because Theodore Roosevelt um, was, uh, went to Groton Prep School in Harvard. FDR goes to Groton and Harvard. Theodore Roosevelt runs to be a state um, representative in New York State and head the Forest, Fish, and Game Commission. FDR runs to be in Albany and run the State Forest, Fish, and Game Commission. Theodore Roosevelt was Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Franklin Roosevelt's Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Theodore Roosevelt is Governor of New York. Franklin Roosevelt is Governor of New York. Theodore Roosevelt loves conservation and Navy history. FDR loves conservation and naval history. Theodore Roosevelt has a niece named Eleanor Roosevelt, and FDR marries her. <laughs> That's his... This is how potent the, 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 what TR means to FDR. And, he's, and, and what, that void that occurs, the conservation movement gets, the baton gets picked up by FDR. 
And um, and the big thing to know, I mentioned 1916, or I said centennial, um, the big pusher of the National Park Service in 1916 in World War I was, you know, the parks guys were run by the army a lot. So here we are, World War One. Why should the parks be running Yellowstone? You know, so they get this park service gets going where they become part of Interior Department. The head of Interior pushing for all this is named Franklin K. Lane, Secretary of Interior Lanes from Berkeley area, California, and it was FDR's close friend. They formed their own club called the Franklin Club. You had to be named Franklin to be a member of it. <laughs> There was a third member, and they would drink and play cards while they, he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy, FDR. And um, there's, so, yeah, and, and he spends much of World War I period on conservation, FDR trying to change Sequoia National Park's name in California to Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Um, but by 1920, when the end of the war, um, FDR runs and then loses, like I said, and he loses and goes back to his sanctified landscape, Hyde Park on the Hudson. And he's back there. And you know what he claims he is his whole life, FDR? A tree farmer. Every time occupation, FDR wrote tree grower or tree farmer because he ran a tree plantation. In fact, Christmas trees were his big deal. I've printed Xerox all of the times he would buy ads FDR in the New York Times for selling Christmas trees Roosevelt Farms you know even as president have a New Deal Christmas get a tree from my farm <laughs> you know, and he'd send Winston Churchill his Christmas trees and the royalty around the world would get gift trees shipped from Roosevelt um, but this is why why is he pushing this that trees and all this because he's an upstate New York politician he has nothing to do with New York City. The biggest blunder scholars make about FDR is they get New York in mind and they think New York City and radio and media and power. His whole career is anti-New York City in a lot of ways. He, upstate New York is his constituency. The people that vote upstate New York are dirt farmers, apple growers, tree farmers, Christmas tree growers, orchid growers, agriculture. Roosevelt's whole knowledge base is based on two things, big Navy and agriculture. And, um, and even on recreation, which I'm talking about, Robert Moses, who Robert Caro famously wrote The Power Broker about, they hated each other, Moses and FDR, yet both are known for recreation in New York State. Leaders, two different visions. Moses wanted New York City dwellers to leave New York, go to like Jones Beach, a beach 40 minutes away, have recreate for the day, then go right back to the city. Quick trips, quick in and out recreation. That didn't bring money to Dutchess County, New York, upstate. So FDR's pushing, no, forget that. You've got to really immerse yourself. Come up here. We have picnic tables and campgrounds and fishing places and little motels and a historic Hudson River Valley where you could follow Washington Irving's Rip Van Winkle lore, George Washington at Newburgh and Saratoga and come upstate. And he designs the Taconic Parkway just like he did, helps work with the Colonial Parkway here or the Blue Ridge Parkway with no billboards, no scenic, th this kind of outdoor aesthetic um, uh, that Moses doesn't share. Moses is trying to move volume to a place quickly. Roosevelt's trying to make the landscape special. Um, but back to that 1920. 
So he's without a job. He's no longer assistant secretary of the Navy, just lost his VP. So FDR thinks, huh, what would Theodore Roosevelt do? Theodore Roosevelt was the godfather, um, patron saint of the Boy Scouts of America. So FDR decides I'm gonna run the greater Boy Scouts of America. And he, he runs the Boy Scouts and he um, invites them all to Bear Mountain State Park up on the Hudson, get all of those inner city kids out of Gotham, out of New York, to have a weekend in the Hudson. He pays for it, organizes it, fundraises it, gets all the boys there for fishing and Indian woodcraft and horseshoe tosses and wiener roast and the whole bit. And he goes swimming with the Boy Scouts. This is August of 21. And he contracts the polio virus. A group of those boys did that day from the water system. It had bad sewage system up there, and it was and and it, he, the virus didn't manifest itself for a few days. It came to become apparent when he was at Campobello, New Brunswick, which is right next to Maine. Right, you could see Maine from there. And uh, he went out putting out a little forest fire on an island, teaching his boys how to put out a forest fire on a little dotted island up there. And um, came back with the shivers went to bed, woke up, and could not feel the lower half of his body. Terror. The man you all know, for we have nothing to fear, but fear itself was in utter fear. And Eleanor Roosevelt came to his side like Florence Nightingale. And that was a big thing because he had had an affair with Lucy Mercer while he lived in Washington, D.C. She had discovered the love letters. Their marriage was deeply strained, but now that her husband was in this crisis, she came to his side full bore, and they got him into a New York hospital, and they got him back to the Hudson River Valley, his home, Springwood, home where he's born on the Hudson. And guess what? Nobody wanted to visit Franklin D. Roosevelt because people thought if polio, you can get it by touching somebody, by hugging them, by being near them. There was a huge mystery about polio in 1921. So here's this popular guy a year ago is on the VP ticket, reading written about every day, now sitting alone at where he was born with nobody wanting to hang out with him. And he starts building his upper body and gets a little strong. Then he thinks, what would Theodore Roosevelt do? When T.R. had his dark moment, I told you he went to North Dakota and disappeared in the wilderness. Franklin Roosevelt connects with Manswell Crosby, the top ornithologist of upstate New York, not the American Museum of Natural History ornithologist, the upstate one. Always important with FDR. It's always upstate. And they go to the Everglades and they disappear into the wild on a boat and they go down fishing, and, but their main goal is to see who can see the most birds. They do an Audubon count on checklisting all the bird life they see. Roosevelt writes a letter to Robert Sterling Yard of the National Park Foundation saying the Everglades needs to be a national park, and we gotta work on this. It becomes a national park when FDR's president, 1934, the same year that the Great Smoky Mountains um, becomes official with FDR pushing the way. And um, he keeps going to Florida, starts feeling better, and then he decides, I'm going to re-enter the arena of politics. But he does two things. He buys Warm Springs, Georgia, hot springs, thermal um, waters to create a tree plantation in Georgia along with polio thermal waters. Um, and he runs it as a polio resort where other people with polio would swim and you would all feel comfortable because you weren't worried about being contagious, et cetera. Um, then he 
trains to do something to not just deliver a speech, but to walk from like that door to here. And he trains both one son on one arm and he learns to move his hip like this and to walk with great pain. And he does it in Madison Square Gardens to give a speech to in behalf of Al Smith, the big Democrat Tammany Hall leader. And the whole audience when he's walking is this is kind of amazing. This is painful. And suddenly he gets to the podium and leans, puts all of his weight because he has no feeling on his legs. So he grabs the whole podium and gives that amazing a voice of his, a speech like the, you know, that you the voice, you know, like from nothing to fear, but fits of this incredible oration. This is true. He finishes the speech and he gets an over one hour standing ovation. And the next day, New York Times says he's back. Frank, forget Al Smith, Franklin Roosevelt. And FDR goes on then to want, win the governorship in 1928 and to win it in 1930. And he distinguishes himself, not worrying about the collapse of the stock market in 29 of what it means to companies and what it means to Wall Street. He's focusing on what's going on for the farmers of America for the rural of America, because he champions the rural people. And he then recognizes that he can hire inner city kids, pay them a little bit of money, and they'll start planting trees, fixing state parks upstate New York. And it's a way to get them out of gang warfare, get them out of the ugly cities and get them up to the fresh air and form a kind of national service corps. It works as governor. He then grabs that program when he runs in 32 against Herbert Hoover. He uses it as the heart and soul of the New Deal that we're going to plant. We're going to we're going to uh, employ a million men planting millions of trees. And the, the Hoover crowd laughs at him on all this, but he pushes it and it becomes the Civilian Conservation Corps. He wins that election, as you all know, in 32. He gives the inaugural speech in March of 33 of nothing to fear but fear itself. And a couple weeks after the speech, he announces the, his pet New Deal project created from his own mind, the Civilian Conservation Corps, where from 1933 to 1942, the CCC plants three billion trees, three billion around America. They employ 3.4 million men that get paid a dollar a day, having to send most of their money home to their parents in order to work on building state parks, recreation areas, uh, scenic highways, do bird wildlife rehabilitation. You know, those 51 bird reservations of FDR of Theodore Roosevelt, he adds 300 to it. Yeah. <laughs> Wildlife forever, the bird flyaways. He creates a duck stamp that all people with ding darling, where they, you, if you're going to go duck hunt, you've got to get this stamp and it gives money to buy submarginal land and turn them into bird wildlife refuges. Because FDR's got to deal with the Dust Bowl. He's got to deal with an abused landscape of America where the South had clear cut its trees, swamps, and wetlands had been drained, historic drought man-made in the great in the middle of the country be due to the great plow up of killing all the topsoil and all these big dust clouds would grow and so my book is called rightful heritage the land of america he's got the task of rehabilitating the entire land not just the financial system 
and it's his strong suit because he knows it. He goes, he, and now he drives his car all over America. It's all equipped with special devices and talks to farmers and, and all of this. He starts using TR's mechanisms, national monuments, many that you know begin with executive orders. He goes in 1938 in the middle, middle of World War II coming, right? I mean, it's like 38. He disappears for three weeks to the Galapagos Islands to follow in the footsteps of Darwin, FDR, working with, with a man named Schmidt, Dr. Schmidt of the of Smithsonian Institute, top marine biologist. And they find a new kind of burrowing shrimp. And he's trying to make the Galapagos a heritage site run by the United States with Ecuador. But he learns that the Channel Islands off of Santa Barbara have a deep floral and fauna tradition unique in the world. Signs and executive orders creating Channel Islands National Monument. Today it's a national park. He goes into Utah and declares Utah is going to become the national park state. Signs an executive order signing Cedar Breaks National Monument. Signs one for Capitol Reef. He's become national parks, takes little arches, a little site there and makes it in this giant parklands. Um, takes Zion, which had the railroads to build a lodge there. And he adds eight times more land using a Zion National Monument to double the size of the national parks. He pours the CCC workers to do it and build the roads to make Utah a national park state. He does that with Vermont with skiing and Killington and all the ski resorts. He does it in Idaho, promoting outdoor recreation as an economic benefit for the state. State parks all over. I mean, let me just take your state of Virginia here. The state park system in 1933 was nearly non-existent here in Virginia. FDR rehabilitates it all. Works on the Colonial Parkway in Jamestown, Williamsburg area. Works on the Shenandoah. And do you guys realize that your state is really the birthplace of the modern national park system because it's in 1933, he's only president in a few weeks. He gets in a top car with no roof, a touring car with Horace Albright, the head of the National Park Service. And the, they, they go driving around Virginia countryside and Roosevelt and Albright decide what we're gonna do is take all of the Civil War and Revolutionary War battlefield sites, strip them from the War Department and cemeteries, strip them from war, strip them from agriculture, and put them all into the National Park Service, including the mall in Washington, D.C. The the, the, all of this is born right after his presidency. By August of 33, it's called the Reorganization Act, and Roosevelt's going to make the National Park Service a dispenser of heritage, not just the big parks of the West or even ones that he works on on the East, but, um, I mean, he does Mammoth Cave in Kentucky and Isle Royal in Michigan. And, um, you know, but he, he's um, going to put all the history sites in the National Park Service. That's why you got them run. That's why you go to Yorktown today, guys, and it's in the National Park Service, FDR. All of it's done in the organization of that period. Um, his first CCC camp he visits in Virginia, George Washington National Forest. Uh, where he spends time with the CCC boys there, his tree army all over America. You know who was a bit leader of the tree army of the South Zone? George Marshall. 
uh, was the logistic leader of FDR. Marshall said nothing was better during World War II. These guys had some training. They learned a trade skill. They learned how to live outdoors. They know how to work together. They know how to eat together. They, it was, even though we always talk about how unprepared America was for World War II, the CCC had a kind of shadow army going, working on beautification of America. Um, other things Roosevelt does, I'll tell you a couple and I'll, I'll wrap up and make you read my book. But the, uh, the June 6th D-Day was yesterday, right? It's front page of the Wall Street Journal today. Do you realize what else happened on June 6, 1944? FDR on like June 3rd leaves Washington and goes hides in Charlottesville at General Pa Watson's house, which is today run by, Mount, uh, by the University of Virginia. It's a property there at Monticello. That's because TR used to always disappear to Charlottesville area, okay? He goes there to birdwatch on the days before D-Day to calm his nerves, A, and B, to not let the media, the press, see anything weird going on. He keeps all of his schedule intact. Nothing, he wants to give the impression that nothing big's about to happen. So he disappears in the Virginia countryside. He comes back into DC for June 5th and um, goes to bed that night. And the next day is June 6th. And my God, the whole world's listening. The liberation of Europe. He gives his famous you know, speech and prayer and, uh, you know, it's, do you realize that day he creates Big Bend National Park in Texas? <laughs> he refused to cancel the meeting from a Texas delegation of Eamon Carter of Fort Worth. And they came, they had the land deeds, they've been working on this. And he has, there are photos of FDR and D-Day drawing lines where a visitor center is going to be a Big Bend National Park, you know. Why? because it means a lot to him. He's trying to develop our heritage, that we keep our landscape sacred, you know, that we, that we, that we have this kind of planning um, going on. Um, I'll give, tell you one other one about World War II on animal species. Um, the, so a woman named Rosalie Edge of New York's Conservation Society Environmental Action Group, a kind of liberal Eleanor Roosevelt sort of personality. She gets a letter through to Harold Ickes, the great interior secretary, and it gets to Roosevelt where she says this, the trumpeter swan will go extinct if the 10th Mountain Division continues its exercises in Henry's Lake, Idaho. It's 15 miles west of Yellowstone in Idaho. And because the waters don't melt there, the swans congregate there so they don't have to migrate to the south. And the artillery in the 10th Mountain Division was training ski troopers for ski patrol in Europe. They're doing cross-country skiing and mountain demolition work and all of, you know, artillery, you know, all of this out there uh, in this high altitude kind of area. And she says, so you have to choose between the 10th Mountain Division, they need to leave. This cost $24 million of taxpayers' money, the 10th Mountain Division training compound. Roosevelt, I can't believe he had the time to even read such a letter, but he not only reads it, he ends up looking into it and he writes, and I, I'll skip the Rosalie Edge part of it and just tell you, he writes Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. Dear Henry, I have now found out about the war between the trumpeters and the US Army, and I've looked into the matter and the verdict is in, I side with the trumpeters. Um, you know, um, sincerely, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Stimson went nuts. <laughs> well, I mean, this is crazy. Why? Why is Roosevelt doing this? Because he's sending a broad message to the Army 
and he's sending a broad. He does letters like this to all these departments. He's looking for one to say, leave the public lands alone. Yes, we are in wartime, but we, Theodore and I, <laughs> have built a system and you're not going to go. We're fighting for these public lands. We're fighting for them. We're not destroying our conservation cycle because of win the war. That we, we'll, we'll go on a case by case if we've got to go in somewhere, but we're not doing willy-nilly shooting animals and going in now all because everything or mining or doing it. It's going to be orderly and we're protecting our public lands and treasured landscapes. Um, I'll end by telling you, I mean, he went up to the Olympics in this period too and saw a whole hill clear, clear cut, stopped the motorcade and said, who did this? Who clear cut this hill? Who cut all the, tra and everybody's, and he said, whoever did it, I hope they're roasting in hell right now for that kind of sloppy forestry practice. Um, and he creates Olympic National Park today, saving the great rainforest up there. But by the end of the war, um, he cook, hooks up with Gifford Pinchot, the chief forester. He's in his 80s now and had like four heart attacks. He's writing his book called Breaking New Ground. TR connects with him, and they decide when the UN gets created, they're going to make the symbol of the UN, their first bit of business, the conservation. They create a slogan, FDR and Pinchot, conservation is the basis for permanent peace. Global natural resource management, where one country can't pollute a river because it'll affect the other river and another country can't have a bad factory air quality. Today, we, you know, kind of a global EPA, if you'd like. Um, War Department thinks this is crazy. So does State Department. I've seen very ugly letters where FDR is telling this is insubordination. I am telling you conservation is going to be front and center of the new United Nations. Most people in state wanted coal and steel community, France and Germany together, you know, finding other ways. Roosevelt sees it as conservation. And um, he doesn't get it. He dies April 12, 1945 in Warm Springs, Georgia. His body is buried there on the Hudson. He'd go to the cemetery. He created the first presidential library, his home, his archives there. He created the National Archives of today, a modern archive, um, um, you know, facilities. But um, Harold Icke said, this isn't enough, the Hudson River burying him there. We got to do something about trees because that's what he loved the most, the tree of life and the tree. He loved trees so much that during the Tehran conference, I've seen letters he wrote to the Shah of Iran, young Shah then, young Shah of Iran and the king of Saudi Arabia, both different letters, not form letters, personal letters. I've been now to your, your country, and um, I have to say, you have a soil erosion problem. <laughs> and we've had one here in America. We created soil districts, and we can help you repair your land. You're going to have to have proper water reservoirs. And then the kicker is I'm willing to donate my time to your country to help you. Um, uh, in the Middle East. Um, and so, but Icky says, let's, when the UN gets created in San Francisco, they all meet there at Knob Hill for the San Francisco Charter Conference, creating the UN. When all the delegates from around the world come, they all go in mass out to Muir Woods National Park in honor of John Muir, saved by Theodore Roosevelt as a national monument, the great Redwood Grove of California that's protected. And they go into the Redwoods and form a memorial service among the giant trees for Franklin Roosevelt, uh, uh, equating him to being a giant in history, a sequoia of a man kind of motif, but for his life work at trying to protect 
lands and do proper land stewardship and conservation. Thank you. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you. Very energetic, informative, and timely as the Park Service seems to be in some fiscal uh, trouble. Yes. Who uh, in uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, Congress, who were his chief allies on the Hill? Well, it's an um, uh, excellent, excellent question. Um, his big, uh, uh, I'll tell you the guy who mattered a lot on my field, it was a man not, who used to be the governor of Utah named George Dern but he becomes the um, Secretary of War. And Dern, uh, he's forgotten in history, but Dern was very close to all of the senators. And uh, he's able to do endless amounts of um, business on conservation with Dern, who's running the War Department, telling skeptical states, look, the CCC's actually good from a military point of view, too. And Dern, Dern does a lot of that uh, kind of broker work. Also, um, Norris, um, uh, Senator of Nebraska, um, Senator Norris is huge, particularly with the experiment, the Tennessee Valley Authority, which I didn't have time to talk about, TVA, of how you do rural electrification, but then do conservation reservoirs and all around it. So in, um, they also, when they would do things, guys like, um, uh, Grant, I'll only pick one, Grand Coulee Dam in Washington, which dammed the Columbia, that had a, a negative effect to the environment. So Roosevelt creates fish hatcheries next to it to help the salmon try to come back because they didn't have fish ladders high enough um, to do it. A big young ally on conservation that is, who is William O. Douglas of Washington State, who FDR appoints to the Supreme Court. And Douglas will become really the conscious of the environmental movement. It's who connects with Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring, worked for fish and wildlife during Roosevelt's administration and wrote pamphlets called Conservation in Action. You're going to be a very tough act to follow. Can you tell us what happened to the CCC, why it's not here today, and why wouldn't our political leaders, for example, back in 2008 during the the economic implosion, why that wouldn't have been an option as opposed or along with the stimulus, which no one really seemed to know what that did. And it seems like to me, when I go around and visit a lot of these CC, CCC spots, it's like, wow, you know, it, it, that would have been such a, you know, a, a visible, much more visible thing to the whole nation as, as something that our government would have been doing to help yeah. us through that time. Great question. Um, I got, incidentally, I got to interview a lot of CCC guys. There are many of them are about in their 90s right now. 
and they're all very proud of it. They joined CCC alumni groups, and now all the states are putting up archives online of the CCC, and there's a new appreciation. But all the guys I talked to were particularly proud of their handiwork, the stone fences they built, or an arch bridge, or you know, a, 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 a Red Rocks amphitheater up by Denver where concerts are held in nature, and you know, and uh, they're all very proud of their work that they did. Roosevelt fought tooth and nail to have it as a permanent government agency, but in 42, it got defunded by Congress because they felt it was a drain on the win the war effort. Roosevelt said it was essential, and here's a weird thing, I don't have time to elaborate, but be part of the punishment of the CCC movement to defund it is why Roosevelt did the Japanese internment camps in the West, because he was terrified of the Japanese burning the forest of the West. If you picked a high drought season like this August and you did wildfires that the whole West Coast would be on fire and that the Japanese may not be able to fly planes and bomb California, but they with sabotage terrorists can go down along the entire coast and, and burn the Western United States. So he's arguing for a CCC to stay to do fire protection work uh, all over the country, and the Congress doesn't want any part of it, um, and uh, that unfortunate part of Roosevelt's legacy of those uh, roundup of the Japanese-American takes place. Um, they, but the, the, the amount of work these guys did, a beautiful work of masonry work in the old crafts, and it's because the CCC was told to do make locations blend in with the environment. So you'd use native stone and native rock, and so it's really a great tribute when you go around the country and visit these sites that are still so uh, amazing today. I don't know whether we would be able to do a CCC today or not. They they claim they're doing it in interior and that states have it and all this, but it didn't capture the imagination of the nation the way presidential leadership on something can. And we haven't had a president that made this kind of project, getting young people unemployed, doing things for um, public service, for American betterment, for, um, but there's, you hear murmurs of the, you know, the Climate Conservation Corps and, job cores and people are doing stuff, but it doesn't, it hasn't had the legacy of accomplishment that the CCC has had. Thank you. Thank you.